Amen. Good morning, and I am so excited to be, we're getting really close to wrapping up this series. We're calling it The Big Picture. It's experiencing the whole story of the Bible, and this is Tammy Smith. Hello, good morning. And we've been teaching together. Today I'm going to do a little bit, I'm going to carry a little bit more of the heavy end of the couch. Actually, a little, little true confession, I have never preached about Revelation before today. So 30 years of ministry, somehow I was dodging bullets and I don't think that was the right thing. So this morning I'm really excited about that. We do have handouts if you want to take some notes. Uh, so those are available, as well as if you want to take part in our online poll, you will see a QR code right here. You'll also probably find it on the skinny. Uh, you can scan that in really quick, or if you get the app, you can put in Andrew Birchie 959 which is my magical code, and uh, actually, as soon as you log in, there'll be a question that comes up, and you can answer that question as soon as you get it, or whenever you feel like it. And I'll introduce it in a few minutes, but it's a really fun way to interact. And I want to get you used to this because after the first of the year, we're going to start a series about inductive Bible study, and there's going to be a lot of interaction. So if you're a smartphone user, I want you to get used to uh, interacting in this way. And so um, we have been creating a timeline since the very beginning of this series, some, what, 14 or 12 weeks ago or so. And um, we've been doing it over and over so that it will begin to stick in your head and you'll get that overall big picture of the Bible. So we are going to have, I'm going to have Tammy introduce to you how we're going to do this and review this this morning. Okay, so we're kicking off this morning with our Timeline Memory Challenge. And uh, if you've been with us through the series, we've been challenging you to memorize some things. We've been challenging you to memorize the genres of the Bible, the different ones, the different kingdoms of the Bible, um, the, the main events on our timeline, and also the books of the Bible. And the reason we're encouraging you to do all this, the ultimate goal is that you could tell the story of the Bible in your own words, in maybe about 10 minutes or so. And the reason we think that's important is that having ownership of the story that is central to our faith is so important. And also you can use it as a tool in sharing Jesus to others and also in encouraging people to grow. So that's both evangelism and discipleship. It's a tool that you'll have ready. And also what I found when I try to say the story is it also highlights the areas I don't know as well, <laughs> the areas I'm fuzzy on. And so then that encourages me to go and study more. And so that's why we're really encouraging you to do that. And so we've been trying to model this to you. And two weeks ago, my daughter Bree was up here and she did the genres. And then last week, Ben Feather was up here and he walked us through the kingdoms. And so I have two brave, not volunteers, but voluntolds. Um, <laughs> my mom, Melinda Reese, and my good friend, Barb Palmer. And so they are going to walk us through this memory challenge. They are facing you and not looking at the timeline, but the timeline is back there for you out there. Andrew will be walking through it so you can see where they're at. But if you are ready for the memory challenge, I would encourage you to close your eyes and try to say that and see how much you know of it as well. So Barb and Mom, take it away. Okay. The timeline starts with the Old Testament, and it's 4000 BC. Um, and that's when God created Adam and Eve. And it's represented uh, with the props by the apple and the globe. And then 1900 years later, 
we have Abraham comes on the scene at, um, shoot, I forgot the date already, 2100 BC. <laughs> and um, he is represented by the beard. And then we have 400 years where the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And then in 1440, Moses comes on the scene, and that's represented up there by the tablets uh, that give us the Ten Commandments that we're to live by. And then in 1400 BC, we have Joshua, who comes on, and he's represented by the sword, and um, he has what? The beard? No, no. Joshua. Oh, the sword. Yeah, that was it. The sword. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And then uh, in 1000 BC, David becomes a king, and that's represented by the crown. And then in 722 BC, um, the northern kingdom of Israel um, falls to Assyria, and that's represented by this poster. And then in 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah falls to the Babylons, uh, and that is represented, and then the temple's destroyed. So there's two posters up there for that. But good news, in 516 BC, the Jews come back and rebuild the temple, which is represented by the hammer. And in 400 BC, the Old Testament is completed and the book closes. <laughs> and then um, there is 400 years of silence. And those people, the Israelites, are still looking for a deliverer, just like they were when they were in the desert for 400 years. And then year zero, Jesus is born, which is represented by the baby, and it's the beginning of the New Testament. It's also the hinge point between um, B.C. and A.D. Right. And then in A.D. 30, Jesus is crucified and rises again, and that is represented by the cross. And then 50 days later, we have Pentecost, represented by the fire, and it's uh, when the Holy Spirit comes and also the beginning of the church. And then in A.D. 70, the church, unfortunately, I mean, the temple is destroyed uh, again, and this time by the Romans, and that's represented by a poster. And then AD 95 is when Revelation comes around, and that is the end of the New Testament, so closing of the book. There we go. <laughs> and it's also, uh, Revelation is things to come. And then, again, 1900 years go by, just like at the beginning, and um, so now it's AD 2000, and that is represented by the phone. Modern day history. Way over there. <laughs> and All that's right. it. Awesome job. <laughs> thank you, everyone. You guys can exit. So thankful I for everyone who has is, who is helped. <laughs> I also would like to um, thank Barbara for doing this with me. It's fun to have a friend. Uh, and also, we want to thank Tammy. Tammy will help you through whatever you need. She was right there by her side the whole time. She did not get her love of history from me. She got it from her daddy. So this was completely out of my comfort zone. But at my age, I thought it was good to keep stretching. And I also wanted to learn the timeline. So this was a great way to do it. So I encourage you to keep doing it.
so proud of you guys. And I do love that they partnered up because that is a good example to all of us that, hey, grab a partner and do it with them because that, that makes things easier. Thank you to Barb. We had him down here because Barb obviously couldn't make it up to the stage. She even gave up a little bit of her time serving in children's ministry to be with us. So, so thankful for them. So we've been using all sorts of creative means so that your brain can grab these facts and remember them, and so you can remember the big picture. So when you are studying the small bits of the Bible, Bible study, you understand the context, and context is very important for understanding the Bible for why it was written and how to correctly interpret it. So here we are at the bookshelf. We've been using this bookshelf along the way, and next week we're going to fill it all in. It'll have the Old Testament and the New Testament, but this week we only have the New Testament. Tell us about it, Tammy. So there are 27 books in the New Testament. I see lots of nodding. Good, you guys are remembering this. There's a chant that I taught you to remember the different books in the different genres of the New Testament. Say it with me. Four, Four, one, one, twenty-one, one. one. Good job. So there are four books that are Gospels. There is one book of church history. That's the book of Acts. Twenty-one letters or epistles, we also call them. Last week, we showed you that there are 13 on this top shelf. Those are all Paul's. And then eight general letters here on the lower shelf. And the final book of the Bible is a book of prophecy. That is Revelation, and that is where we are today. Great. Well, my pastor friend Don Finto tells a story about being in the Jesus movement and watching these hippies come to Jesus. And one of his hippie friends walks in excitedly and said, I read my Bible last night. I read my Bible. He said, okay. And this man had just given his life to Jesus. He was very new to faith. And he said, well, what did you read? He said, I read the book of Revelation. And Don just cringed, oh no, and wondering what was going to happen next. But he didn't say it out loud. Smart pastors don't show when they're, they're frazzled. And so he said, so what did you learn? And he said, well, I learned that evil always loses and God always wins. And Don is amazed. He says, I, I couldn't believe it. He actually got it. And that is really the punchline this morning. I'm going to start with the punchline. That evil always loses and God always wins when it comes to revelation. And that's very good news. Very good news. Okay, so I'm going to give you an illustration to help you as we dive into the end times here. So this is a picture of a dimly lit room. And I've heard this, this is an analogy with um, a man named B.B. Warfield that did this, and I thought it really applied to today. His analogy really is comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, but I think it also applies to end times. And so the analogy is that uh, the Old Testament is like a well-furnished, dimly lit room. So imagine yourself being in a dimly lit room, and you can sort of make out what's in there. You can maybe feel around. You feel, oh, I think there's a couch here, and 
there's a chair over here, and oh, this must be a table, right? But you can't make out details, the real col the true colors of things, even how the room is really laid out and flows together. And so that is like how it was in the Old Testament when they were hearing about the Messiah and what was to come, right? Well, Jesus comes on the scene. He flips the light switch on, right? And so those of us now who live after the crucifixion, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit coming, it is very clear to us what that room looks like. We can make out all of those details. And so it makes, it makes sense to us. So when it comes to end times and Jesus' second coming, it is like we are in the well-furnished, dimly lit room. So nothing has changed about that room. We just can't see it real clearly, right? And so I just thought that would be a good illustration for you to keep that if things do feel fuzzy, well, Christ has not come the second time to turn the light switch on again. And when he does, it will be very clear as to what the, the plan was all along. And I think there's a great verse in the Bible that supports that. And that is 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And what we have to remember is back in the day when Paul wrote this, that a, a good mirror was like a shiny piece of metal. It wasn't what we have today. Really, probably the best would have been uh, a reflection in water, right? But still not super clear. So we have to realize like that's what he's saying. It's not going to be really clear to us right now. Until we see him face to face, then everything we will fully know. So you ready for a poll question? Here you go. Even if you don't have a smartphone, you can just play right where you're sitting or right at home. Who wrote the final book of the Bible? Was it Peter, James, John, or Paul? That's right. Lock your answers in. I'm hearing them across the room right now. There's some smart people. Is it coming up on your phone? I'm hoping so. It should, looks like it's all activated and everything. Well, let's just see. Yeah, 72% of you said John. Some of you said Paul, and that was a really good guess, but that's not true. So as we transition, Tammy, I know that as we've walked through this Bible overview series, that Revelation kind of has a special place in your heart for at least one reason. Tell us about that. So... Well, a couple of different things that I would take away. I would take away what he said in the intro, that God wins. <laughs> and so we, as, as followers of Jesus, we don't have to walk in fear. We can be at peace. But also, because this has been really trying to get uh, the big picture in front of you, right, we want to keep this overview in mind. And so when I think of Revelation, I think of it with Genesis as these bookends to the whole story. And so in Genesis, it started in the garden. And at the end, it's going to end in a garden-like state. And I love it. It's beautiful. There's so much purpose to God's word and this overall story. And so for us to see that that's been his plan all along. It's one unified story that leads to Jesus, and it ends with him too. That's right. <laughs> so without further ado, we want to show you a short Bible Project video, which I think explains this type of literature called apocalyptic literature, which Revelation is a part. Take a look. It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood, mountains crumble, mutant locusts swarm. These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic. 
And while most people think the biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world, it actually doesn't mean that at all. So let's talk about how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So wait, the apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world? No. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Because I don't always see things the way they really are. Right. We all develop familiar ways of seeing the world that can limit or blur our vision. So an apocalypse is like a revelation. Right. Now, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show someone what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. For example, take Isaiah the prophet. He's suddenly transported in a vision into God's throne room. Oh, right. He's in God's temple, described as a bridge between heaven and earth. And there, God gives him a divine perspective on Israel's past, present, and their future. So that Isaiah can bring challenge and comfort to God's people in his own day. Or think about the Apostle Paul, who was trying to stop the movement of Jesus, but then he gets stopped in his tracks by a vision of the risen Jesus himself. Yeah, he realizes that he's fighting against the very thing that he's been hoping for, and it changes the course of his life. So these apocalypses give people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation, and they can give hope, or they can challenge you. Or make you change everything. Now, those are biblical stories about people having an apocalypse. There are also whole sections of biblical books where a prophet describes extended apocalyptic dreams and visions. People call this apocalyptic literature. And reading these dreams and visions is difficult. I mean, they're filled with strange images. Like, let's take Daniel. He sees ferocious beasts coming up out of a dark sea, trampling people on the land. And then a character called the Son of Man is exalted to rule the world. What is going on? Yeah, apocalyptic literature is written in a poetic, imaginative style, and it's packed with symbolism. How can I know what these symbols mean? Well, first, by studying the rest of your Bible. Apocalyptic imagery is based on biblical design patterns that begin in the book of Genesis and then develop throughout the Bible. Like the chaotic sea in the first sentences of the Bible that God tames but doesn't eliminate as he orders creation. And so the sea becomes an image of danger, death, and cosmic chaos. Ah, and the dry land, which comes out of the sea, is the safe ordered place where humans are supposed to rule as God's image. Yes, and also on the land are beasts that humans are supposed to oversee. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast. And start acting like violent beasts. Exactly. Now, sometimes a prophet will tell you what a symbol means. Like in Daniel, we're told those beasts symbolize violent human kingdoms. But more often, the authors just assume you know how to trace an image through the biblical story to understand its meaning. Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, because it's one really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse. Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary transported to God's throne room, where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world. But Jesus is depicted as a bloody lamb. Right. It's a design pattern showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. 
And then John sees the ultimate beastly dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires. It's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king. Yeah. Now that reminds me. When I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven-part cycles of God's judgment, and it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the 10 plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter 1, as God allows the world and humans to sink back into darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. But remember, in Genesis 1, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and life. And so too in the Revelation. The death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so while the Revelation feels like the end of the world. It's actually about the beginning of the renewed world where heaven and earth are reunited and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay, this is a lot to take in. It is. And there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear. To give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. What a blessing those guys are right, to be it. able to in say so much Bible, in such a short amount of time. Of and Revelation feels like the end of the world, poetry, the video says, but it's the beginning of a renewed world. And it all starts with this little Greek word, right, apocalypsis. Now, apocalypse means to uncover or reveal, suddenly seeing what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. And so it is very much like pulling back the curtains and seeing what God has been doing and what he will do. Now, apocalyptic literature oftentimes is a prophet's dreams or visions. In the case of Revelation, it's John's vision revealing God's perspective, a heavenly perspective on history in light of history's end. So the purpose of apocalyptic literature our Bible Project guys tell us this. It is to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and be given hope for the future. And some of you are really passionate about Revelation. Raise your hand if you're really passionate about Revelation. Okay. There you are. I knew about you. I just didn't know exactly who you were, right? There's some of you who are like, when are you going to preach on Revelation? I don't know. But it makes sense today as we go through the entire Bible. Now, talking to my friend Derek, who loves Revelation, 150 chapters of the Bible, start to finish, that refer to the end times. Our friends at the prayer house, at International House of Prayer, did a great job putting this together so you can see Mike Bickle's um, PDF. It lists all 150. We put a link on our website for you. But here's a few I just pulled out that I think are key 
scriptures as far as end times are concerned. I also put this image on the website as well if you want to look at it later. So this morning we're going to focus most of our attention on the book of Revelation. Now, it's a book that a lot of people shy away from. They say, well, it's, it's too hard. It's too confusing. It's too controversial. There's too many opinions on what it means. It's too scary. I just want to avoid it altogether. Can I have 65 books and I'll just leave that one off? But no, do you know it's the only book in the Bible that actually says you get a blessing for hearing it. Hearing it meaning because most of the people originally who received it couldn't read. So they were hearing it spoken or heeding its words. Revelation 1 and Revelation 22. At the beginning and the end of the book it says, hey, there's going to be a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. At the very end of the book, behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says. We're going to talk about that at the end of the message. Blessed is he who who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. The word keep is the same one where Jesus says you need to guard or you need to keep your eye on the command of Jesus loving one another. This is to keep an eye on these things. Keep an ear out. Asking yourself questions about things like, well, what does it mean for my life if Jesus were to come back soon? What does it mean if judgment is actually coming to the world? What does it mean if there is a heaven and a hell? What does it mean for me that we stand before the Son of Man and we're judged? What does it mean when Jesus returns? He's bringing rewards because we don't talk about rewards enough. So why is revelation important? Just a couple bullet points really quick. First of all, it reveals the ultimate fulfillment of God's rescue plan, the one that started back in Genesis. It ties all of the loose ends of the Bible together because the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. It also gives us hope, hope to those of us who are believers about what's to come because the best is yet to come. It shows us that God is in control. He's the king of kings. Do you know there's 35 references to being God being on the throne in Revelation? 35. Doesn't matter what's going on in the world, God's sitting on his throne. He's in control. He's in charge. He is the king of kings. It shows Jesus in his glory, his his glorified state, victorious over all things. We've seen him come and live and die and rise and teach even up to 500 people before he ascends into heaven. But we finally get to see him fully glorified in Revelation. And it focuses us, those of us who are Jesus followers, on eternal matters. It shows us scenes of heaven, the coming judgment, the new heavens and new earth. All things that get us our focus off ourselves, off our circumstances, and focusing our eyes on things above, Colossians 3, 1 tells us to do. So, what about the book of Revelation? It was written by a guy named John. I believe it was John the Apostle. You can argue with that if you want. It's a John, but I think it was John the Apostle. He wrote it on a little rock called Patmos. And it's this little island with not much shrubbery. And he was exiled out there, it looks like, because he was preaching. And 
well, they didn't like that very much. Domitian, who I believe was the emperor at the time, really wasn't taken kindly to Christians and starting to really persecute Christians. And so he was stuck out there and he has this vision. The dating of this book, traditionally, up until the 6th century, everybody said it was 95. You can take an earlier date if you want. It would be 65. But that probably doesn't mean much to most of you, except for you big Bible nerds, right? Here's my simplified outline of the book. Are you ready? You've got this. Three circles. The first one, it's all about Christ in glory. Chapter one, he's the son of man. He's in heaven. He says, I was dead in verse, verse, uh, chapter one, verse 18. I was dead and now I'm alive forever. That's good news. The second circle, chapters two and three. These are all about seven letters that are written to the churches presently in that first century. And so he says in verse 11, John, write what you see on a scroll and send it to these seven churches. And he names them in order. And then the last one is really the rest of the book, chapter 4 through 22. What happens about this crazy ending of the world? And that is probably the part that you're a little bit apprehensive about. Chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to churches in the first century. And as we look at a little map here, what we're going to see is the, the churches are actually listed in the order that you would actually take these letters around in a circular. This is like a circular letter, though there are seven specific churches mentioned and seven things that each church either did really well or was kind of being admonished for that they needed to clean stuff up. I made a list here for you. And if you were a messenger, you would take this route. It's the same order that Jesus gives these letters in. And yet, even though perhaps one of these letters is to the church of Smyrna, the rest of the churches would benefit from reading what Jesus was saying to the church in Smyrna. And just like that, we too can benefit greatly from reading these letters. They're really, really precious and beautiful to us. So, Chapters 1, 2, and 3. No problem. We got this, right? Woohoo! That's right. That's right. Chapters 4 and 5. If you're a little afraid, don't be afraid. Why? Because we get the most beautiful pictures of what heaven looks like and the throne room and things that poor John, he's working so hard to explain. But there is incredible color, sound, music, worship, creatures. And Jesus the Lamb is the only one who can open the scroll in his father's hand, and he is being worshipped. What's the point? The point is God's kingdom works through this crucified Messiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb who died on our behalf, and he died even for his enemies. His death and resurrection is how he defeats evil. This is not what the world says. This is the kingdom. It's the kingdom economy that's upside down. The rest of the book also shows that many people will come to faith in Jesus in the end times, in part because Jesus' followers are willing to do the same as Jesus, loving their enemies and being willing to give up their lives if necessary. This does not look like grabbing for power. 
This looks like laying your life down. Just as no one took Jesus' life from him, he willingly laid it down. His followers also are invited to do the same. Now, I was reading about a Russian army officer. And he grabbed this pastor in Hungary. And he had this pastor tied in a chair. And he had this revolver out and had it to his head. And he said, renounce Jesus right now. And the pastor said, no. He said, I know that you're, this is a trick. This is just a, a game you're playing. Why are, I'm, I'm going to kill you. I can kill you right now. This gun is loaded. And the pastor said, no, I won't renounce Jesus because it's true. How do you know it's true? He says, because Jesus has changed my life. He said, I'm giving you one more warning. I'm going to pull the trigger. He said, go ahead. And then the man threw the revolver around the, the, across the room, burst into tears, and he said, finally, finally I know for sure that Jesus is real because you were willing to die rather than renounce him. Ooh. That's the power of being willing to lay your life down. And that's the kind of willingness to love our enemies that Jesus calls us to. And it is not easy. So what does a description of the end times look like in brief as we read through Revelation? Chapters 6 through 16 talk about three sets of divine judgments. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Seven seals seems to kind of refer and reflect the story of the flood in Noah's time. The seven trumpets definitely remind us of the ten plagues and how the nations won't repent just like Pharaoh refused to repent. And then the seven bowls, this wrath that's poured out, and it reflects the exile of God's people in Babylon. Now, there are all sorts of views on how you want to interpret this, and that's probably one of the reasons why you don't want to look at Revelation. You're afraid you're going to disagree with the person next to you. I can guarantee you, you're going to disagree with the person sitting next to you. My closest friends don't share the same views as I. And then you'll be tempted not to read it or to study it. But the truth is, none of us can know for sure anyway. And so this is a fascinating opportunity for us to learn how to love one another and disagree and stay in relationship. It's a great tool to use and learn the command of Jesus by talking about end time stuff and still liking each other at the end. I'm so right this time. So some people would see this as a literal thing uh, where you have the seven and the seven and the seven and it's just all one line chronologically. Others would say, no, this is actually three different views of the same sets of, set of events going on from three different perspectives. A little bit like, um, let's say, the four gospel writers who write about Jesus, and they write from different angles, and we get to see different aspects of what's true and what's happening. Because at the end of each of these sevens, it looks like the end of the world. And then, well, it's kind of like we start over again with the four horsemen or whatnot. And however you decide it makes the most sense. This is a time of suffering, violence, tribulation, judgment. Fair? I think we can all get on that same page. So 
when we decided to do a Lego art show and offer people to make Lego creations, the very first person that came forward was Joab. And Joab says, I know what I want to do. I want to do the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, you do that. So Joab did. He created the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's another slide past this too. Gives you a little bit of death and destruction there. I mean, this is, you know, those of us who are guys, you know, we like a little, little, little bit of carnage. It's uh, exciting. It's a little more exciting than the woman at the well, I suppose. Uh, um, but anyway, thanks, Joab, for doing that. That kind of finishes out all, that was the very last of all of our Lego creations, and that was a fun project to do. So let's talk about the Great Tribulation. When you think about Revelation, this is probably what you think about. Fire from heaven, things being destroyed, God pouring his wrath and his judgment out, violence and destruction. And many people would look at Daniel 12, Matthew 24, Revelation 11, and they would say the time frames there point to a seven-year tribulation. You've probably heard that before. We don't know for sure, but that's what is commonly held by many people. And while some would say that all of these events happened in the first century, and, and I believe that a lot of them, at least there was a, a first fulfillment in the first century, most people that I know would, would put these events still yet to come. We still have relationship, even if we don't agree on this statement. And those who would say that all this happened in the first century, um, they might say that you're just being a victim and you're a negative Nancy if you see things getting worse and worse. But I take issue with that because I believe that those seven years are still coming, but I'm an overcomer. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I believe in signs and wonders and miracles, and I've seen them with my own eyes. And do I think that God can still pour out his spirit and save many? A hundred percent. Do I think all will be saved? No. So I can live in this tension, and I know that I'm an overcomer. I'm not living as a victim. So I'm going to talk as if these things are in the future still. And some people see as Revelation as a code book to decipher. If I could just figure out all the secrets, then I can figure it out and I'll be like the only human ever to know this secret knowledge. That's fun. You can do that. I'll play along if you want, but that's not really the purpose of the book. What I do know is that we're living in the church age in this time when we have the Holy Spirit living inside us who can lead us and guide us and help us and strengthen us and keep us even when things get difficult. Tribulation, great tribulation, or just tribulation this week. And I know we're all waiting for Jesus to come back. So, pastoral moment. As I'm studying, and I studied way extra to be able to talk to you today and hopefully say it in a way that would make sense and that would be brief, I got so frustrated you know what I got frustrated by? The lack of humility. You go on a website and they're like, this is this and this is this and this and this. There's not the sense of like, well, we believe this and you could see this view. There's not a sense of like, well, it, it, from my reading, I think this is what I take out of it. It's like people definitively saying this is what this is. I can't hang with that. 
Because it feels like you're not telling me the truth when you're presenting something as factual and you're not actually giving me the humility that goes with it. So pastoral moment, as we think about Revelation, and I hope that there's a ton of conversations about Revelation this week. That would make me so happy. And I hope you read it after this message. But please, please, please handle it with humility because none of us know. Even Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour for him coming back. If Jesus doesn't know, I certainly am not going to be that sure. Okay? Great. Second coming. What will it look like? Oh my gosh. Now this is the fun stuff. Because this is such good news. So, he comes the same way he leaves. We know this by two angels who tell us that. Acts 1. He comes through the clouds. Awesome! Coming with his angels and the glory of the Father like lightning across the sky. Come on. Can I get an amen in the house? Then when will this happen? The definitive answer. Here it is. Not. Yeah. Next slide. Thanks, Jared. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. There is a day that's planned, but no one knows the fa- no one knows but the Father. No one knows the day or the hour. That's what we know. Jesus says that in Matthew 24. But he'll come suddenly, quickly, like a thief in the night. And he'll come on time, after the fullness of the time of the Gentiles. And without, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. I'm not using this to manipulate exegetically. I'm just saying this is what the Bible says in Second Peter. It goes on to say, and he doesn't wish for anyone to perish. So, do we know when exactly? Soon is the answer. And we'll end there. So this coming, have you heard this term rapture? Not in the Bible. I think, and I'm trying to figure out how in the world, what, why are we using this word? I think we're using this word because rapture describes the joy that we're going to have when this happens. Oh joy, oh rapture, oh rapture, oh bliss. So what is the rapture? The rapture is your opportunity to fly like Superman. That you will meet Jesus in the air. How do I know this? Well, you don't even have to work hard at this one. This is Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4, this chapter here. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Pause. Those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. It's a Bible euphemism thing. Like those people who have... Gone on the ground. We're not going to go before them. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have died will rise first. And after that, verse 17, we who are still alive, oh Lord, let me be alive for this. That would be so fun. And who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. How fun is that? If you're not excited about that, we need to talk to you about Jesus and who he is and help you understand the fullness of life that he has for you and the fullness of life not only now but forever. There's three main views on this. We're going to nerd out a little bit. You ready? So when Jesus comes back, 
We can say, well, if you're a pre-tribulation thinker, that means that before things get hard for those, let's say, seven years, uh, we get raptured and we go hang out in heaven for seven years, we have a party, and then we come back at the end of the seven years. This is my description for you today. Mid-tribulation, somewhere in the middle, maybe it's before wrath. That's called pre-wrath rapture. We get raptured, we hang out with Jesus for three and a half years or so, and then we come back with him at the end. Or the last view, which is post-tribulation, which means that at the end of those seven years, yes, it's been hard for us, we get raptured, but we're a welcoming party. We're not going up to someplace in the sky. We're just going to the sky. We're welcoming him and bringing him back. By the way, this language here is similar to one passage in Matthew and Acts where the people go out and receive someone and bring them to where they live. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. So, where is it that we're going to get caught up by Jesus? Don't know. I think if you're voting for what seems to be least painful, I suppose pre-wrath would, or pre, pre-trib would win, Right? Get me out of here. Beat me up, Jesus. This place is a pits. But what if, what if we're going to actually live through at least part of this tribulation? Are we prepared for difficult things? I think American Christians are kind of soft, honestly. Because when you start studying about what's happening in the countries and the persecution that's going on, we don't have it very difficult at all. And are we prepared for it to be difficult? Could we actually be persecuted for our faith here in the United States? I know people that are already. And are we ready for that? Now, if you say, oh yeah, I'm a pre-trib guy. This is all going to be good. Great, but are you ready for trials right now? Do you believe that when you give your life to Jesus, actually things get easier? Because I am reading the Bible and it actually gets harder. Jesus says, blessed are those who will persecute you for my sake. Things will get harder if you decide to follow Jesus. Are we ready for difficult times? Whether those times are someday for seven years or right now. In China, years ago, Christians were told, don't worry, before the tribulation comes, you'll be raptured. But then came terrible persecution in China. And millions of Christians were tortured to death. One Chinese bishop said this, We have failed. We should have made people strong for persecution rather than telling them that Jesus would come first. So tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution, how to stand when the tribulation comes, to stand and not Faint. And as the shepherd of this house, it would be such a fail for me not to tell you that we must strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We must know where our identity is. We must know our Bible so we're not deceived. We must hold strong and firm to our convictions. And we must live and walk and grow in community. And if we don't, we will not stand when things get difficult whether those things are someday for seven years or next week when the wheels fall off your life. Well, at the end of the tribulation period, 
And no, I'm not going to get into all of the minutiae. This is Bible overview. We could talk about those things later, and we might. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus comes back on a white horse and he defeats evil. And for the parts of you that are wired for justice, because God wired us that way, this is such good news. And Satan and those who are doing his bidding are captured and they're put in a thousand year exile, a prison, if you will, into this fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the Bible Project guys kind of sum things up for Revelation this way. I just wanted to show you this little image. The book of Revelation is a symbolic vision for every generation of the church that reveals history's pattern because there is a pattern that has gone over and over and over, whether it's called Babylon or it's called Rome or it's called other more current kingdoms of this world. They all become Babylon and they must be resisted. And we see pictures of what Babylon is in the Bible, calling for worship when it's economic manipulation and war. And, and, and in light of that, God's promise is that Jesus will return to remove evil from this world. So back to the flow of the book then. We've got this thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom, if you will. Now, some would see this as um, figurative. I see it as a literal thousand years that Jesus will come back to earth. He will reign in Jerusalem on the throne. And there's all sorts of different Old Testament scripture that hyperlinks and informs this. This is going to be an amazing time on the earth. And my friend Don and I were talking about it, and, he, and I, I agree with his statement that maybe we need a thousand years to clean things up after we've messed up the world, and that this time is a time for us to clean up some of the things. Who knows? But it's a powerful thousand-year reign. And at which time there is this incredible event called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. This is Derek's favorite thing, right? This is the great multitude who have been saved by Jesus and every tribe and tongue and nation. And they've been forgiven their sins and they're celebrating with Jesus and it ties into the symbolism of God's people being his bride. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful symbol, and it's gonna be a great party and fantastic food that you can't even imagine. If Jesus can eat fish after he's been raised, for sure we can eat in heaven. After a thousand years, for reasons I won't go into right now, because I'm not sure what they are, in Revelation 20, verse 7, Satan will be released from prison. And then Satan and the, and the people that he's uh, co-opted surround the city that he loves, Jerusalem, and the fire comes down from heaven, gobbles them up, and they're sent to the lake of fire forever. Applause, 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 applause. So this would not be a fair eschatology without talking about judgment. Judgment is part of the story of the end times. And we see the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. We also see that Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good 
were bad. Some people would say, oh, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat is different than the, the great white throne judgment. Don't know. Don't need to know. There's going to be a judgment. Jesus is going to sit on the throne. He's going to judge us. Cool. And not only is he going to judge who has been written in the Lamb's book of life and know that you're going to enter into rest or not, he's also going to give rewards. Some of us are just kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do it for rewards. Why not? Well, that's not a good motivation. It's motivation enough for God. He put it in there. I'm cool with rewards. By the way, when you get your rewards, if you're like the elders around the throne, what are you going to do? You're going to throw them on the ground and go, oh, pfft. get on your face. Cool. I got something to throw on the ground then. It's like scoring a touchdown and spiking the ball. Right? So those who've surrendered their lives to Jesus while on earth are forgiven their sins. Their rewards are given to them, to us. And this judgment thing, this isn't about like, okay, well, you did these good things and you did these bad things and I'm just hoping that these good things are more. No, no, no. That's not how it works. Well, if I just do enough good stuff, then he's going to let me in. No, no, no. There is only one way to the Father through Jesus Christ, through believing on his name, by trusting him with your entire life, by surrendering to him and making him your Lord. That's the only way. So this judgment thing, don't get, don't get twisted. It's really important. And then, there's the part nobody wants to talk about, hell. People are doing all sorts of stuff to try to explain away all kinds of exegetical gymnastics. It's bad form. It's not biblical. These are people who don't understand the holiness of God. I don't either. But, and the heinousness of our sin and how the more innocent the victim, the more grievous the sin. So if I go over there to Pastor Chris and I kick him in the shins, you go, Andrew, stop that. That's not good. But if I went over to your four-year-old and kicked him in the shins, it'd be way worse, right? Why? Because that four-year-old seems more innocent. You're fine. You're, but you know what I'm saying? The holiness of God makes sin so much more damaging than when we damage each other. Because of his, his innocence, if you will, if I can use that word. So the idea of hell, and I know so many of you wrestle with this. This doesn't feel fair. This doesn't feel right. God is, look at it this way. These are people who do not choose to be in relationship with God. And so God honors his, their will and grants them their desire, Right? So C.S. Lewis said, sin is man saying to God through life, go away, leave me alone. And hell is God finally saying to that man, you may have your wish. It's God's leaving man to himself. This man has chosen. All right, last two chapters really quickly. 21 and 22. They're really fantastic. 21, there is a recreation. And we have three things in these two chapters that become new. First of all, a new heaven and a new earth that God has prepared. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 65, verse 17, if you're taking notes. Two, there's a new holy city, Jerusalem. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 2 and Zephaniah 3. And why is God doing this? Well, God is finally getting what he's always wanted, and that is to dwell with his people 
to be with us just as he was in the garden, just as he was in the temples, and just as he was with Jesus making his tabernacle among us, and then the Holy Spirit then living inside us. This is a full representation of Jesus and and the Father and the Holy Spirit fully being present. Revelation 21 verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 21, verse, uh, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, John says, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now it's not a localized sense of God's presence, either at a temple or even inside us, but everywhere. All creation is the temple of God filled with his presence. And then in 22, we see this bookend that Tammy talked about. This garden-like state. And this is the third new thing. There's a new garden for us to be in. It's a fulfillment of Genesis 2 and Exodus uh, and Ezekiel 47. Just a few verses here in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And it, it goes on and talks about there is no longer a curse and it's a beautiful fulfillment of all that has come, come before. Humanity finally rules as God's image bearers, which is what we see in Genesis 1, verse 23 and following. The curse of sin and death of, from Genesis 3, they're gone. God is not separated from his people. They can now look on his face and not die. Once again, you have trees just like in Eden, bringing healing and life. There's no angel banishing us from this place. So Revelation brings us the good news of the gospel finally and fully realized. Before we close, two quick thoughts. One, God's a promise keeper. He always comes through on his covenants. Therefore, the covenants he's made with Israel are still good and he's still bound to them. There is a place for Israel in the end times. It's a critical place. The church has not replaced Israel, but Israel has a distinct place in the story. In fact, even Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, so all Israel will be saved. I think this is happening after Jesus comes back. Their deliverer, their Messiah, the one that they've always looked for all along the timeline, whether it was through the Moseses or the kings or the prophets or the judges or others, finally they get their deliverer, their Messiah. And what about this Jesus coming back soon thing? If you've been watching The Chosen, you see that they pick up on this idea of soon. Soon. They keep saying that word. What does soon mean? Well, three times in Genesis 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says he's coming back soon. Jared, put that slide up for me, please. Behold, I'm coming back soon, verse 7. Behold, I'm coming soon, verse 12. Verse 20, yes, I'm coming soon. Jesus, I think we got the point. I'm coming back soon. And yet, it would be easy for you to go, wait a second, but it's been 2,000 years. What does soon mean? Glad you asked. If you look at this little Greek word for soon, it means quickly, suddenly, unexpectedly. Boy, doesn't that sound a lot like Matthew 24 where he comes like lightning across the sky with his angels. 
By the way, Jesus is the one that told us that he doesn't know the day or the hour. So how could he tell us about soon if it meant like, oh, in a couple days or a couple years or 20 years from now? I think he's talking about the manner of his coming. And why is this important? I think it's important because Jesus is stressing both here and in the Gospels, the need for us to be ready for his arrival. How then shall we live? That's all nice revelation stuff, Andrew. How do we live? Well, just like the parable of of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Got to be ready in 24, he says, because the Son of Man will come in an hour. You don't expect him. So how would we live differently if you knew next week Jesus was coming back? Would you live differently? And if the answer is yes, then the question is, why not live that way, not knowing exactly if it's next week, next year, or next decade? I want you to stand before you all. I'm just believing that as you hear these things, that your heart will begin to leap. By the way, uh, one, quick, one quick reference. Uh, Don Finto, pastor friend of mine, uh, father in the faith, wrote a book called The Handbook for the End Times. Um, we'll leave this slide up, so if you want to take that down, you can order on Amazon. Uh, it was a helpful read, very simple, especially if like, this is all new to you and you're like, I just want to learn about it. Get this, this is about living your life in such a way that you would expect Jesus to come back. So prayer folks, if you come forward, Jesus, thank you that you are the glorified king on the throne, the lamb that was slain, the lamb that was slain for us. And so as we look at your word, may you bring it to life. Would you just kill off fear and concern and bring us to a place of faith? Bless this family in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Bless you. We'll see you next week.